We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar, a program that reviews the stories of God's persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock. The martyrdom of Stephen in AD 34 marked the end of the 70-week prophecy recorded in Daniel chapter 9. Our next stop on the historic timeline of New Testament martyrs takes us 10 years further down the corridor of time to AD 44 and the martyrdom of the Apostle James, also known as James the Great. During this 10-year period from 34 AD to AD 44, arrests, beatings and intimidation had become commonplace for those of the way, which was the name the early Christians were known by. A group of believers who had been rounded up and carted off to Herod's dungeon, amongst them was the Apostle James. The event seemed a little more than the usual inconvenient harassment that the Roman leaders felt obligated to perform at the insistence of some of the Jewish leaders. These evil religious men seemed obsessed with the followers of Jesus and wanted them wiped from the face of the earth. But things took a sudden turn when James was hauled out without fanfare and summarily executed by the sword in prison. The church in Jerusalem was stunned. Their opponents were elated. This was the highest profile leader of the church that had been executed up to that time. We read about this in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to arrest some of the church. That time referring to the time of the worldwide famine, which had been foretold by the prophet Agabus in Acts chapter 11 and verse 27. Then verse 2 of Acts chapter 12 says, Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James' death turned out to be a political experiment on Herod's part. Herod had been converted to Judaism and was apparently very zealous for the ceremonies of the Jewish law. It was therefore quite natural for him to use his public office and target those who were sheep-stealing, so to speak, by converting Jews to accept Jesus as the true Messiah. This movement seemed to be spreading like an infection throughout Israel and other parts of the world. These Christian converts had done nothing wrong, but for some reason they had provoked an extreme hatred from the Jews. Herod was eager to obtain the favor of the Jews, and in the process he hoped to secure his political office further and receive more honor from the Jewish nation. As such, Herod proceeded to carry out their desires by persecuting the Church of Christ. He confiscated their houses and goods and imprisoned the leaders and the leading members of the church. Now when the old politician saw the excited response to James's death among his political allies, Herod considered it expedient to eliminate a few more of the leading Christians. It was shortly after the martyrdom of James that Peter was arrested by Herod and put into prison. His plan was to execute Peter 
as soon as the Passover was completed. We read about this in Acts chapter 12, verse 3 to 10. Now, starting in verse 3, we read, And because Herod saw that it pleased the Jews that he had martyred the apostle James, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now in the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 144, we read the following, and some more excerpts will come from that book. It was during the Passover that these cruelties were practiced by Herod. While the Jews were celebrating their deliverance from Egypt and pretending great zeal for the law of God, they were at the same time transgressing every principle of that law by persecuting and murdering the believers in Christ. These religious leaders were appealing to the political power of their day, namely Herod, to enforce their religious laws and bring about persecution. The death of James caused great sadness and consternation amongst the Christian believers. And when Peter was also imprisoned, the entire church engaged in fasting and prayer. Herod's act in putting James to death was applauded by the Jews. However, some of them had complained about the private manner in which James was executed. They argued that the high-profile public execution would have been much more effective in intimidating the Christians and deterring any potential sympathizers. Herod held Peter in custody and intended to gratify the desires of the Jews for a public execution. It was, however, suggested that it would not be safe to bring the veteran apostle out for execution before all the people who were then assembled in Jerusalem. Some feared that he might provoke the sympathy of the crowds as he was led out to be executed as a martyr. The priests and elders also feared that if Peter was afforded the opportunity for any final remarks, that he would make one of his powerful appeals. Every time Peter had preached the gospel publicly, many in his audience had converted to Christianity and many more were aroused to study the life and the character of Jesus in the light of the Old Testament prophecies. These types of appeals presented in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Jewish leaders, even with all their logic and cunningly devised arguments, were unable to overthrow. Peter's enthusiasm in promoting the cause of Christ through preaching the word of God had led many of his hearers to take their stand for the gospel. The rulers feared that if he was given an opportunity to defend his faith in the presence of the masses who had come to Jerusalem to worship, that they would demand his release at the hands of the king. Acts chapter 12 verse 5 tells us that Peter was therefore kept in prison till after the Passover, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 145, we read, With the execution of Peter being delayed until after the Passover, the members of the church had time for deep heart-searching and earnest prayer. They prayed nonstop for Peter. They realized that they had reached a pivotal point in time where without the special manifestation and help of God through the gifts of the Spirit as manifested in the Apostle Peter, the church could be destroyed. 
Jewish worshippers from every nation had come to the temple which had been dedicated to the worship of God. This edifice glittering with gold and precious stones was a marvelous vision of beauty and grandeur. But God was no longer to be found in that splendid palace of worship. Israel as a nation had divorced herself from God. She had rejected the Messiah, she had refused to repent, and had claimed to have no other king than Caesar. When Jesus, near the close of his earthly ministry, had for the last time looked upon the interior of the temple, we read his parting words in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, where he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Up to that point in time, Jesus had called the temple in Jerusalem his father's house. Days earlier, he had driven out the traders and money changers from the temple, and he had still contended for it as the house of God. But as the Son of God walked out from those walls on that day, God's presence was withdrawn forever from the temple which had been built to His glory, and that great house was left desolate. The prayers of the believers continued to ascend to heaven on behalf of Peter. All their energies and sympathies were called out in fervent appeals for help. Unbeknownst to them, angels of a God were watching over the imprisoned apostle. Herod remembered now that the apostle had formerly escaped from prison. On this occasion, he had therefore doubled his efforts to prevent any possibility for escape. Peter had been put under the guard of 16 soldiers. As four squads of four, they rotated on different watches and guarded him day and night. In his cell, he was placed between two soldiers and was bound by two chains, each chain fastened to the wrist of one of the soldiers. He was unable to move without their knowledge. The prison doors were securely fastened and a strong guard was placed before them. All chance of rescue or escape by human intervention was cut off. But man's extremity is God's opportunity. When Peter was imprisoned in this hewn-out cell out of the rock and the thick doors were strongly bolted and barred and the soldiers on guard were made answerable for the safekeeping of the prisoner, but even these bolts and bars and the Roman guards could only cut off all possibility of human aid. And this only made the triumph of God in the deliverance of Peter more complete. Herod was lifting his hand against the Holy Omnipotent One, and he was to be utterly defeated. By putting forth of his might, God was about to save the very life that the Jews were plotting to destroy. In that last night before the proposed execution, a mighty angel was sent from heaven to rescue Peter. The strong gates that shut in the saint of God were opened without the aid of human hands. The angel of the Most High passed through and the gates closed noiselessly behind him. He entered the cell where Peter was sleeping, the peaceful sleep of perfect trust. And we read in Acts chapter 12 and verse 6, 
And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Peter mechanically obeyed, keeping his wandering gaze riveted upon this visitor and believing himself to be dreaming or in vision. Acts chapter 12 and verse 9 tells us, So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. The angel moved towards the door, followed by the usual talkative Peter, now speechless from amazement. They stepped over the guard and reached the heavily bolted doors, which swung open of their own accord and closed again behind them. The guards inside and outside remained motionless at their post. The second door, also guarded within and without, is reached. It opens just like the first one did, without the creaking of hinges or the rattling of the iron bolts. Peter and the angel pass through, and the heavenly door closes just as quietly as it had opened. In the same way, they pass through the third gate and find themselves in the open street. Everything is done without a sound. No word is spoken. There is not even the sound of footsteps. The angel glides out in front, encircled by a light of dazzling brightness. Peter, still bewildered and believing that he is dreaming, follows his deliverer. As soon as they pass on through one street, and as soon as the mission of the angel is accomplished, he suddenly disappears. Acts chapter 12 and verse 10 says, When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. The heavenly light fades away, and Peter finds himself in profound darkness. As his eyes become accustomed to the dark, it gradually lessens. He is alone in the silent street and can feel the cool night air blowing on him. He now realizes that he is indeed free and in a familiar part of the city. Peter recognizes the place. He had expected to pass the same place for the last time in the morning on his way to the execution. He tries to recall the events of the past few moments. He remembers falling asleep bound between two soldiers with his sandals and outer robe removed. He examines himself and finds that he is fully dressed. His wrists are still swollen from the iron handcuffs from which he had been freed. His freedom is no delusion. It is not a dream, and he has not been seeing a vision. It is real, a blessed reality. That morning he was to have been bound and led out for execution, but God intervened, and an angel had delivered him from prison and from death. Reading in Acts chapter 12 and verse 11, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angels and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. The apostle immediately made his way to the house where his fellow believers were gathered. 
At that very moment, they were earnestly praying for him and praying that God would intervene. We continue reading on in Acts chapter 12 from verse 18 and 19. When as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. His attempt to kill Peter failed, and therefore he could not devise a further plan as he was distracted by a crisis with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Herod died shortly thereafter when immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died, as we read in Acts chapter 12 and verse 23. James, the son of Zebedee, has the noteworthy distinction of being the first martyr among the twelve apostles. His death came within 13 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Only Stephen preceded James among the well-known early martyrs. Stephen's death and Saul's persecution must have made it clear to the apostles that things were not going to go well in the area of personal safety. Jesus had prepared them for this conflict when he said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John chapter 16 verse 33. Jesus had promised his presence and not necessarily preservation in the great gospel commission when he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 26 verse 20. Curiously, James and his brother John were confronted by Jesus at one point after their mother asked the Lord for a special privilege for her sons. Jesus asked the two of them, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Though they most likely had no idea what Jesus was referring to, the brothers immediately said, We are able. They thought they were about to get a privilege above the other ten disciples. Jesus responded, you will indeed drink my cup, Matthew 20, verse 23. His words were prophetic. James was the first to die and John the last. Their deaths formed the bookend in the stories of apostolic martyrdom. Of the three disciples with whom Jesus spent extra time, that is Peter, James and John, we have the least information about James. His own brother John never mentions him, or himself for that matter, by name in the gospel that he wrote. James, the son of Zebedee, is called James the Great, merely to differentiate him from James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, who was also one of the disciples. In the context of history, 14 years doesn't represent a large time span, but Jesus' active ministry only covered three and a half years. The question becomes then, what were James and the other apostles doing during the first 13 to 14 years before James died at the hands of Herod's soldiers? During the years following Jesus' ascension, an uneasy relationship developed between the growing movement of Christians in Jerusalem and those Jewish leaders who had rejected Christ's claim and helped to have him killed. And to complicate matters, we also see the Roman authorities who were charged with keeping the peace Order was often maintained by the use of threats and torture. The early chapters of the book of Acts provide glimpses of the ebb and flow of the persecution of believers. 
But Luke records a significant movement involving Kamalia, the rabbi who was Saul's mentor. He wasn't opposed to the persecution of believers, but he cautioned his fellow members of the Sanhedrin against killing Christians. He understood the power of martyrdom. Gamaliel said, And I now say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is the work of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. And you, in fact, are found to be fighting against God. This tactic may have kept many believers in Jerusalem and thus slowed down the progress of taking the gospel to the world. And Stephen and James's death eventually changed all of that. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD scattered the church to all wind directions. The death of Stephen almost seemed like an unusual case in which things got out of hand. But packing Christians off to prison became part of life in Jerusalem. Saul apparently had success in intimidating Christians to the point that many left Jerusalem for safer places. This had the benefit of spreading the gospel, something that Saul certainly didn't intend or expect to happen at this point in his life. As far as Saul's plans were concerned, he did not intend nor expect to be confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus either. But when Saul defected as the chief persecuting official of the Sanhedrin, the situation in Jerusalem became a stalemate again for a number of years. An ancient church in Spain claims to contain at least some of the remains of James's body. This gave rise to the tradition that James may have left Jerusalem for a number of years on a mission journey to Spain before his death. There seems to be little reason why Luke would not have included some reference in Acts to that effect amongst his notes about the outreach. But it does appeal to our pioneering view of missions that one of the apostolic fishermen would embark on a long voyage so far to the ends of the Mediterranean, the ends of the earth, so to speak, and seek to carry out Christ's mission there. Now about this time, Timon and Parmenas were executed, one in Philippi and the other in Macedonia. Now you may ask, who was Timon and who was Parmenas? Now in Acts chapter 6, and verse 2 to 6, we read that the 12 apostles summoned the multitude of disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Here we see also people like Stephen, who were also part of the seven deacons, Timon and Parmenas, who laid down their life in the cause of God, and followed Jesus Christ even unto death. And it says that once these deacons had been set before the apostles, when the apostles had prayed and they, they had laid hands on them, they set them apart for this holy purpose of sharing the gospel and finally losing their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me today on Souls Under the Altar. God be with you. Until next time.
Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you would like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.